Welcome to the Soul Mama podcast, where we have deep and honest conversations about healing, awakening, spirituality, and wellness on the sacred journey of conscious motherhood. We ask how we can walk this path in a way that nourishes, elevates, and heals us and our children. We deserve space and time to slow down and tune in to our hearts, to heal ourselves, and to honor our highest callings. It starts with us. I'm Nahanda Truscott-Reed. I'm a mother, holistic wellness coach, writer, and speaker, and I am passionate about all of the ways we can raise our consciousness and come into more alignment and power as women and mothers. So we can heal the past and make more empowered choices for the future. Our stories and voices matter. It is my intention that these conversations inspire, motivate, and move you on your own Soul Mama journey. I'm so honored that you're here. This conversation is with Mimi Kuo Dima. The thing that first attracted me to Mimi was her energy. She has such a serene, peaceful, super calm vibe. And when I heard her speak, she spoke with such grace and gentleness as you'll go on to hear. It was only fitting when I found out she was a yoga and Qigong teacher. She really embodies the whole Zen vibe and is dedicated to living, sharing and evolving the art of self-cultivation, which she goes on to explain. Mimi is the author of two books, Qigong and the Tai Chi Axes, Nourishing Practices for Body, Mind and Spirit, and show young self-cultivation for a happier, healthier, and balanced life. We speak about this book in this conversation. She's also produced a number of digital programs for yoga, qigong, and meditation, and has some beautiful YouTube videos. She is the co-founder of Beijing's first and leading yoga studio, and she teaches regular yoga and qigong classes in London. In this conversation, we go deep into her story about how she came into this work, We speak more about self-cultivation, about grace through miscarriage, and self-compassion. I really hope you enjoy it. Mimi, welcome to the Soul Mama podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Mm, It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I recently came across your work at the Kind Festival, and you were on a panel speaking about your work in uh, Qigong and your kind of just your gentle nature and this kind of peace and clarity just came across so viscerally and you led a beautiful Qigong session at the end of that day and I just felt like wherever you're living I need to tap into and have on this podcast here today so thank you for that. So you are a yoga teacher, um, a vinyasa yoga teacher in London. You're a Qigong instructor. So how did you come into this path of movement and elevating this kind of ancient traditions for modern life? Oh, uh, so my first forays into movement started when I was three. And my mother uh, saw that I was walking with turned in feet, what people call pigeon-toed feet. So she thought, if I go to ballet school, I'll do the opposite, turn my feet out and hopefully walk normally. Um, but I went dutifully to ballet school, was never very graceful or good at ballet. Didn't really like the outfits or the tutus, but I persisted and I, I stayed with dance um, for a while. And when I got into high school, I continued and I, I really fell in love with, with movement, um, ballet, jazz, modern I really like the creative aspects of it and the expression that that I felt while doing it, even though even though i I never got picked to be sort of in other people's dance performances. I was never very good at it. I always felt very klutzy um, and kind of self-conscious. but i um, I do th- appreciate that background in movement because it it in- informed my body. Uh, and it made it feel like I could have a resource and an embodiment. And um, later when I was living in China, uh, after I finished university in 1994, I, I worked as a journalist in Beijing. And I didn't take care of my body. I kind of 
smoked too much, drank too much, really was hard on my body and I got mm. very sick. And uh, my mother, again, mothers, mothers know, don't they? I mean, they, they have this sixth sense or they just know their children so well. So she, she used, she used to do yoga and actually she still does yoga every morning, a little bit of movement, but she had this book from the 1970s, a, a photocopied version. And she gave it to me when I was really unwell. And it was of a, a woman doing yoga in a leotard uh, and just not very sexy looking, but I took it and I started trying some of the, the postures at home and I immediately felt a shift. I, I almost cried. I remember just kind of feeling back into my body in a way that was intentional and, and mindful. Mm. And I continued practicing with the book for a while. And in hindsight, the practice that that offered me gave me my health back, but it also put things into higher resolution. It made things a lot clearer for me in terms of how I saw myself, how I saw my relationship with other people. Uh, I felt kinder to myself because I, I wasn't performing like I was in dance. And it was much more of a, an internal process of uh, sensing and feeling and, and observing um, where I was. Beautiful. Uh, and then later, as I, uh, I, I was in China still, and later I, I opened a yoga studio, and then I met a, a man named Matthew Cohen, who's an American yoga, qigong, tai chi, martial artist, dancer. Um, he's jack of all trades and master of many, is how I like to think of him. <laughs> Paradoxically, it was through Matthew, who's uh, an American Jewish man who taught me Qigong in China. And his amalgam of practices felt natural and immediately uh, helped me feel grounded and alive in a way and present in a way that yoga was kind of pointing at, but didn't give me a full experience of. Mm. And I, I wanted to speak a little bit more about that because you seem to kind of move seamlessly between the two, you know, in terms of your references and your movement. But did the two feel like a natural alignment for you when you were going through it? Or did you kind of have to piece the two together in a kind of effort, efforting way? I felt they immediately complemented each other. But on, uh, on the journey of my own self-discoveries, I didn't really have people teaching me. So I explored and experimented a lot. And it was just through my own practice that I, I discovered this kind of complementary balance and, and energy flow that Qigong offered my yoga practice. And that what I now understand, having kind of looked back on it and studied it and tried to unpack, you know, why is it that yoga and Qigong feel so good together, uh, that I understood that Qigong is an energy practice and it uses intention. And often in yoga, uh, we've been handed down a practice that doesn't have quite as much focus on energy and intention, intentionality. The intention is to clear your mind, right? To stop thinking sometimes, or right? the intention is to perform and execute sort of uh, um, rubbery body shaped poses. But the um, or the intention is to stay with the breath, but when I say intention, what I mean is like visualizations that draw from the natural world to inform the way that we move, and also give us access to a sense of why we move and, and our connections to the natural world that we sometimes forget we have. Mm. I felt in the practice that you led, the descriptions that you gave felt so poetic almost, and it was such a treat to kind of be guided through movement in this kind of visual, natural world way. And that's something I found really missing from modern Western studio yoga practice. You know, personally, I've been doing yoga for 10 years now, but I feel like since becoming a mother, it hasn't been satisfying what I need in the same way. And I've kind of put that down to being in a different season of my life. But I'm also aware that it's kind of come from this male lineage and the space for feminine expression and you know more slowing down in this gentleness 
seems to be missing. And that, that feels present in Qigong, at least in the way that I've experienced it with you. Mm. So the first, uh, first topic you touched on was the visualizations of yeah. the natural world. So in, in a yoga class, you very rarely hear instructions other than exhale, right foot forward, inhale, arms up, exhale, open out, externally rotate this, internally rotate that. So there, the instructions tend to be a little bit dry. Um, but what I found with Qigong is so many of the instructions are very rich in drawing from the natural world. So for example, I'll say if a student has the leg up and downward dog split, yeah. one legged dog, exhale, moon land your right foot forward, carry sunlight across from the back of the mat to the front, or you know, move the, the, the leg as though it's moving through water and landing on, on sand. So that it evokes aspects of, of nature that inform how we move. And it, it adds this layer of poetry. But actually, we know these patterns in our bodies because we're part right. of the natural world. You know, we're not, they're, not, they're not separate and excluded, but we're, we're the micro, microcosm of the macrocosm. And, mm. um, and then to speak to the, uh, that, that sense of shift in you know, seasonality or motherhood or the feminine, uh, there, I, I think you're onto something because the yogic traditions, as rich of a goddess background there is, the the primary transmission has been very masculine. Yeah, and the the primary transmission has come through the Brahmanical Vedic traditions, which unfortunately, let's just say, they didn't give a great platform for women. <laughs> you know, that continues today in the caste system and sort of the relegation of women to. Um, the, the acting agent for man, right? Um, and in Qigong, the, the, it comes out of the Taoist tradition. And within Taoism, there has always been the celebration and importance placed on the feminine and the yin. And there's never been sort of an absence of priestesses. And priests and priestesses within the Taoist tradition are equally important. Uh, women have never been excluded from the practices and they've always had kind of a very celebrated role. China today, obviously in the last few centuries, has not given women a great position in society. Um, but historically from the Taoist tradition, you know, there's been a role for women and, you know, the Tao Te Ching has great quotes, but one of them that I love it, uh, is, know the male, but keep to the female. Know the yang, but keep to the yin. You know, the Tao is the mother of all things, the great matrix. I love that. And I really feel that sense of feminine energy, but in a way that feels balanced. Because I feel like the space that we're living in now, the kind of consumist, you know, capitalist, patriarchal, fast-paced Western society has completely dismissed or suppressed that sense of balance and that sense of feminine power. And so by living into these movements and embodying some of this balance, I feel like that's one way to kind of personally address that. How does that feel for you? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this recently. Uh, the environmental kind of emergency that we're facing, uh, what can we do? What, what can we do on a personal level? And I firmly believe that we can start with how we treat ourselves in our bodies and that we do things that nurture rather than deplete. And today's world has emphasized something that uh, celebrates pushing an aggressive movement that depletes us. And, you know, we, if you look around at that consumer society and that mentality that we've inherited for the last few hundred years, uh, post-industrial, but even before that Renaissance ideals, man, right, has risen to the top of the food chain and nature, even before the Renaissance, was something that was there for man's taking. Exactly. And that nature was something we conquer, we master, or we control, mm. which if you say, I want to be at one with the natural world, it sounds great, right? It sounds, oh, perfect, harmonious, be at one with things. But if you unpack that and carefully think about that, that's a radical idea if you've grown up in the West. 
Definitely. And that that is the process that I feel awakening is about. Mm. It's that kind of distancing ourselves from all of these beliefs and yeah. norms that we take for granted and really questioning them and being like, is this serving me? Is this serving my community? Mm. And is this serving the planet? And I think on all counts, it's a no. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> you know, you look at disease, you look at the way that the environment is being treated, you look at the way our food systems are set up. It's like, everywhere we look it feels like it's about exploitation and profit and what can we take and what can we gain yeah and for me I feel like there is now an inevitable hopefully turning point and opportunity for us as individuals to step more into this consciousness and intentionality about the ways that we live and the things that we do and I think your your latest book show young is one way that we can do that so let's talk a little bit about that now because that's about the the kind of Chinese art of self-cultivation and you make a distinction quite early on in the book about the difference between self-cultivation and self-care and I wondered if you could speak a little bit to that yeah the little subtitle I think was from self-care to self-cultivation because I I think self-care is really important I think it's necessary because we have had a lot of wounds that need bandaging. And if we're speaking about sort of pulling the lens back, like you're saying, and really questioning the intentionality behind anything that we're doing, do we want to keep bandaging wounds? Do we want to keep injuring ourselves, depleting ourselves, straining ourselves, and and being aggressive towards ourselves, running, running a lot and pushing our body until it breaks down? You know, doing a yoga class until you feel like roadkill at the end. Uh, and, and people want that. They want to feel kind of they've almost hurt themselves and therefore there's some benefit. And I, I find this so bizarre, like that kind of inversion of pain and brokenness being like an accomplishment. Like, when did that happen? Yes. But then you look at the way that we're working in the natural world, like we're not respecting it, right? We're not cultivating, we're pouring chemicals into the land instead of putting nutrient and refertilizing the land. So self-cultivation looks at, well, can we not always try to undo the damage after it's been done? Right. Can we not just try to do things to care for ourselves because we've been depleted, but can we access and establish some resources within our lives that help us grow what is optimal for us to help us you know not only not only be sustainable in the way that we live but actually generative in the way that we live that's powerful that to me is sort of the the crux of the difference between self-care and self-cultivation and again i really respect self-care and I, i think it's important because we have to be truthful that there's injury to our spirit, to our bodies, to our, our hearts, uh, that, that we need to care for deeply. And we can also begin considering like, what are the ways that we grow? What are the ways that we nurture ourselves and support ourselves? In the book, I draw a lot on farming techniques. Yes, you do. You know, how do we grow good food? Well, we start by having really good soil. How do we how do we be a good mother? Well, we start by making sure that you know we're not calling out for constant need care and um, and burnt out. We're able to care for others. We're able to grow things, grow our children, support them in their growth um, because we've got a fairly good stable base, right? And somehow people think that having a stable sense of self and a a sense of um, baseline health has dissolved and and isn't within reach anymore. But actually there's simple things that people can do to just support kind of an alignment with the natural world again, that our body wants, craves, you know, our spirit, our heart, our mind, nature knows how to find equilibrium. Yeah, and we are a part of nature. And so these things are not so elusive or esoteric. And, and actually, they're, they're simple. So let's talk about some of those ways. Imagine a mother who has maybe one or, or two small young children. 
experience of that in and of itself can be so upheaving. That kind of sense of all balances are kind of tipped. You know, you might be sleep deprived. There may be a sense of just kind of reacting all the time. And yet in your book and in the ways that you speak, you talk about this kind of self-reflection and space and kind of listening to your body and all of the things that I think when we hear, we know we should be doing. But the reality of that in the midst of new motherhood can be really difficult. So thinking about some practical, simple ways that we might begin that journey, what would you say? I think the first step would be to recognize that reacting and feeling overwhelmed are natural. That felt good. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. At all. Because we judge ourselves so Of hard. course you're going to be. It's that sense of like, oh no, I, this, I should be doing this and be zen, you know? Like, yeah. I, I, I would love to see what that looks like, but it feels like that goal every day. And then by the time you get to the end of the day, you're like, yep, nope, failed again. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, th- and that is, it, the, the judgment is a strangleweed. It just undoes any good intentions and efforts and the goodness of your practice is is really founded on the acceptance that as a human being, you're going to get worried, angry, sad, stressed out, overwhelmed. And that's normal, completely normal. And so what do we do through that to support ourselves? Be gentle, just do little things like take three minutes, you know, lie down, cellularly breathe, like kind of breathe until you're, imagine your cells actually getting nutrient when you breathe in, which is what's happening. Imagine there's toxicity moving out, you know, just kind of coming back to a natural process that's happening unconsciously, but bring some intentionality back to it. There's a a practice I put in there about softening the hands. Um, The hands are the messengers of the heart and they're very hardwired to the brain. So often we get very tense, like we play with our fingers if we're nervous or, um, you know, I see this a lot in Qigong where people are moving their hands and they're, they're kind of rigid. And when we invite the hands to relax, it automatically just softens the, the tension that can sometimes build up in the head or the heart. Mm. Yeah, they sound kind of really simple things, but they're incredibly deep and, and effective. And also, you know, working to create that awareness that you're a new mother or you are a mother or you're going through a difficult time and that's normal. If, if you didn't have stress, that would be unnatural. Exactly. Right. If if a plant is going through a storm, it's going to get stressed out, right? (laughs) If there's a drought, it's going to get stressed out. Mm. If you've got some good soil, you do things in your home to make sure you've got some healthy food to eat. You've got some resources of, you know, friends that can like cheer you up. You've got a couple things that kind of keep the baseline ground steady for you. Mm. And then you can withstand the unexpected grim turns of life or the howling winds that blow or the, the days that you're just parched and dried out and, and depleted. Like you can weather those okay because you, you kind of take a little time to start setting up some, uh, some habits, some lifestyle choices, you know, not getting on your phone really late at night because mind just wants more stimulation. Actually turning off the phone taking a bath, getting to bed early, you know, if your child is young and you're getting up in the middle of the night, that's accepting that rather than fighting it. And, and then building in other times of day where you can get a little bit of downtime. Mm. Um, but Thank you. yeah, I think it's really about seeing that we are natural and part of our natural human uh, inclination is to have this conscious mind that has a wide spectrum of emotions And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be human beings. Exactly. I think that's the thing. It's like we're trying to perhaps deny the reality when we're in it. Because especially, I think for me, when I was a first-time mother, I had this image of like it, it needing to be so natural and, you know, easy. And it should be something that just kind of instinctually flows and it didn't feel like that for me and I think since coming into this work and really tuning into instinct and kindness for myself 
and what things I can do to support myself on this journey. By the time I had my son, I was in a much stronger foundation. And even though I still went through the challenges, I felt like I was much more resourced and able to support myself through even just kind of micro moments of just like, I'm going to take a breath, you know, like howling screams, but I'm going to just be calm and I'm going to be centered and I'm going to choose how to respond Mm. rather than just reacting all the time. And that's it. You know, I put a very big section in the book on show young for the, uh, the mind and the heart. How do we work with our hearts and our minds? How do we uh, care for and cultivate kind of a balanced and harmonious heart? And the, the main focus in those sections of the book are on mindfulness, uh, which has unfortunately been watered down and lost its current currency. It has become a little bit of a buzzword in wellness conversations. What do you mean by it? Well, with the tradition and lineage that I've come out of, it's the Buddhist teachings from the Theravada tradition mostly. But there's mindfulness is kind of a, a sad translation for the original meaning, which was um, of sati, which they've translated today into mindfulness. But it means to remember or, or to guard like a post. And what are we guarding? We're guarding... The, the mind that has the ability to get caught up, but also the ability to be luminous and bright and knowing. And we're remembering, remembering, like remember the body coming, like the members, the limbs back in, like being embodied and present in a compassionate way, in a way that isn't about just not judging. It's like judgment will come up, right? But for me, it's about, Allowing things that are then really embracing nature. Dhamma is probably most uh, often translated as laws or teachings, but for me, it's nature. And if we remember through mindfulness, sati, that we are a part of the natural world and that as part of the natural world, we've got these emotions. We've got this mind that's amazing, Mm. right? That it logical and it thinks and it remembers and it plans and um, wonderful not to deny that to ourselves but to let go of the drama and what I'm hearing there as well is kind of letting go of the control and I think about this in yoga but just in life generally like a lot of the resistance that we experience and the dis-ease or the discomfort that we experience Mm. comes from this need to control things the way that we've been sold, they should look. And so when you're sensing that's not happening for any reason, like, you know, my child doesn't behave that way, or I, my body doesn't look this way, or, you know, my house isn't how it should be, or, and the should is what causes that resistance and that stress in the body and the mind. And this is something, you know, we're all working with, but how do you deal with that when it, when it comes up for you, that sense of resistance against what is? One of my teachers, Martin, he says, what we end up doing is should do this, should do that. All we do is we're shouldn't all over ourselves. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, we're shouldn't all over ourselves. And um, one of the the beautiful aspects of Taoism and of Buddhism is that it operates from the premise that we are all part of the natural world and part of something that is always fluid and changing. And what it speaks to is impermanence, which is a difficult word because the, the greatest fear that every one of us has is to die. And the, as a mother, as a daughter, as a partner, like we don't, we don't want to lose those we love. Right? And, and we don't want to leave those we love by dying. And yet dying is a very natural thing. Everybody will die. And so... If we really look at that, we're going to live much more fully. And, and the small shouldn't, it seems a little bit pointless when we, if, if we really accept that this one life is, is it. We've got this golden moment, this beautiful, bright consciousness, this awakening possibility, this generous and loving heart. Are we going to squander that or are we going to cultivate that? And are we going to allow from our own practices, our own way of of looking at the world, some flourishing within ourselves and let it ripple out? 
or are we going to squash it and kind of walk around grumpy? <laughs> and, and, and ultimately, I mean, that's kind of the choice we're faced with when we really sit deeply with change and control resists change. And, and when I start to feel myself resisting, which I do, yeah, I don't want it like this. And oh, I had a lot of resistance recently about some work. And then I, I recognized that I was making it so much about me. It was very, I was very um, prone to self-centered thinking. It's like, oh, I don't want to do this. And, uh. and then I shifted it and I said, you know what? But these will be really good resources for other people. And what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to moan about me or do I want to make a positive impact and, and share something that could be of value to someone out there? Maybe people will like it. Maybe they won't. I can't control that. But all I can do is, it's like, what am I going to do with this precious life? Right? Mary Oliver's words. What am I going to do with this one wild and precious life? I think it's that balance between what you call the I, me, mine that whereas I think the West is you know living that out beautifully or not um in the sense of the ego based you know everything's about me and my world and my family and my life and it's like yes of course we have this beautiful opportunity but we're not separate and we're not alone in that so having that that bigger awareness and that ability to kind of zoom out and kind of like what, what can I allow to pass through me? What am I going to be a vessel to rather than being the kind of sole orchestrator of everything? I find that that helps me as well when I'm like, do I need to sweat this small situation or can I, can I just lean back a bit? You know, we're, we're always being talking in and I feel like actually sometimes leaning back is probably where we can get some more peace because you can kind of observe a bit more and not be so tied into what your action or inaction is going to do or not do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And there's a paradox. The, the Buddha was the one who spoke about the I, me, mine as, a, as kind of the cause of suffering. Uh, and I spoke about the view of vastness in my book and that leaning out and kind of getting some perspective is very, very helpful. And it was actually advice I got from a tree. You know, people might think this is weird. I think it's normal. I, I listen to trees and they often give me some advice. And this one tree, leaned my head up against it, top of a mountain in Switzerland, old knotted pine. And it immediately just said to me, I was like, is there anything I should know? And it says, stay vast. I love that. Stay vast. And we do get caught up in the small petty concerns and that can obstruct the flow. And the paradox is from Zen Master Dogen, who was a Japanese monk, 13th century. And he said, to forget the self, you have to know the self. Can you say that again? That just felt like bristles. To forget yourself, to forget the self, you have to know yourself. Mm. So... It's not about forsaking the self. That's the paradox. It's not about, it's not about me. You know, it's about the teachings or it's about, you know, the natural world. And we are nature. The moment that we forget that, we get into trouble. Right. And so any care that you're giving for yourself, any cultivation of the self is by nature a cultivation of the world because they're not separate. And, and I, I'm hearing that and I feel like I'm getting that, like the more that that's repeated, there is that sense of like, what's our responsibility? What, what, you know, should we be going out and making changes in the big world? And yet that sometimes comes at a sacrifice of your own needs or your own balance. And I think, especially in, you know, activism or, you know, environmentalists, it, it can go too far down a road where, the self gets completely dismissed and denied. And what you're speaking about is doing the both in unison, like honoring yourself and honoring the bigger, wider vastness. Yes. The, maybe there's others who are listening who relate to this, but when I first started teaching, I thought I have to let teaching be about the yoga. I have to just be a conduit through which everything is being shared and it's not about me 
and I would go into classes and really feel, okay, it's not about me. And so I would just be kind of transmitting. And then sometimes I would get very caught up about me and then I'd have to convince myself it's not about me and go back into, I'm a conduit and it's just about sharing the teachings. But then my teacher, uh, I spoke to him about this and he's like, that's spiritual bypassing. Let's talk on that. Because <laughs> we're an individual, yeah, unique being for a, for a reason. Yeah. And if we completely remove ourselves from, from what we do, then we're denying yeah. the world of our yeah. unique expression. But also, we like it or not, it, it is me transmitting. <laughs> I can't just say it's from you know, God or nature or love. It, it's part of it, but it's coming through me. And so it is about me, which is why that quote from Dogen is so beautiful. Because if I'm going to forget myself, I first have to know myself. Yes, yes. And I better work through the things that are triggering me and the sharp, clumsy way in which my ego comes up. If I'm really going to make it not about myself, I, I have to understand how myself is triggered by these things or how it's getting um, kind of how friction comes up and what I can do, which is what Xiaoyang is. It's smoothing out the roughness and irregularities within ourselves so that you know, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our relationships in the world can really be fruitful. Xiaoyang stands for Xiaoxinyang Xin, which is to nurture and cultivate the heart, culture mm. and nurture the heart. So it's like work at that level of the heart and know that whatever you do here is manifested outwardly because we are not separate. And when you, you know, if you've ever looked at a mandala, uh, which is an image that I really tried to thread through the book, the practice of looking at the mandala is to see yourself as part of the universe and not to see yourself as separate, but contained and within that whole. I think that is such a beautiful concept and one that if we can really live into and begin to honor in ourselves, like that feels like the sweet spot. That feels like the, the balance. You know, I think especially when you go into, into motherhood, in, in the way that it's set up in this society, you can feel very separate and alone and, you know, cut off from everybody else's rhythms and patterns. And it can feel like what, what I'm doing here, is it even significant? Like I'm just at home looking after this child or these kids. And I feel like coming into that sense of what I am doing is significant and I am significant and my, the ways that I'm doing things are important. Having that awareness and nurturing yourself through that is going to be the best foundation for your, your wider, you know, impact in the world. Um, and I wondered if we could speak a little bit, we touched on earlier about life and death and where I saw you speak about your personal journey with miscarriage. Mm, yeah. And you, you spoke about that so beautifully. And I wondered if you could talk about it again here about how that was for you personally and how you helped yourself heal through that time. So I have been a mother um, four times, and each time the, the fetus didn't make it. So it's been quite a journey. My husband and I have always wanted children. Uh, we've been married 13 years, but we don't have any now. Um, and the first time that I miscarried was right after we got married, and I miscarried quite early. It was very traumatic for me, but I, I think I assumed I would get pregnant again and I would carry to term. But the, um, I was in China and the judgment that came from the Chinese doctors towards me was very damaging. They said, why didn't you come in right away? We could have, we could have prevented this. This is your fault. Wow. They did not mince words or opinions. That's the worst thing you can hear. I know. Yeah. And I really had a lot of blame against myself. And then it didn't help that within China, people are not usually very tactful. I mean, they, they usually speak their mind about quite a lot of things and uh, really great things culturally on one end, on one, you know, in some instances, and then other instances that just, you just think like, 
what did you just say to me? <laughs> but um, meaning well, many people said, I was teaching yoga at the time. They said, is it because you did too much yoga? Mm. And then that created another loop for me of blame and judgment and what ifs. And my mind just spun out. But again, I, I said, oh, I'll probably get pregnant again. I didn't get pregnant again for many, for five years. And we had gone since the first marriage, we moved to the UK and we tried IUI. Uh, we, we tried, we didn't try IVF because I just wasn't ready to create a life in a Petri dish just for me. I wasn't, I, that wasn't where my husband and I were. Um, but we went through a lot of different tests and he went through many tests and um, nothing was wrong. Like they couldn't find anything wrong. So um, it was actually a very difficult time that I got pregnant again because it was right after his mother had died unexpectedly. Wow. And so there was this grief and then suddenly this new life and we were just so excited. And you know, we told family, we did the whole thing, but then I miscarried at nine weeks. Mm. And uh, that was very painful. And I spent a lot of time listening to mindfulness talks on the couch and, um, but I was hard on myself. I went back into teaching right away. I felt angry and I was on internet chat rooms and looking for answers and very ashamed of myself again. Mm. Um, but in denial to an extent, and that really damaged my body. Um, I had to go, eventually to see Chinese doctors and, and Ayurvedic practitioners because I wasn't sleeping well. I had dry lips, dry skin. I was very easily startled. Like I knew there was like this empty space in me and it was, you know, kind of chi deficiency or vata excess, um, depending on what tradition you're looking at. Yeah. So um, that was hard. Um, and, but I, I was uh, able to eventually heal, but only after you know, a good three, four months of really not feeling very well. And the next time I, um, I was pregnant, I got pregnant again. <laughs> um, and it was a year later, and I was more even about kind of my emotional level, like recognizing, okay, this is maybe not going to work out, but of course I want it to. It's such a hard place to, to be in that sense of wanting to trust your body, but also fearing the worst and not wanting to get too excited, but at the same time wanting to bring an intentionality to it. Yeah. And I miscarried again at about eight, nine weeks. That was again, very, very hard, but I, was much more gentle to myself that um, that time. Um, I should say once one other time I did, it was early, early on in my younger years that I was pregnant and I didn't carry to term. But so this fourth time though, I was like, you know, I'm just going to uh, be gentle. And I, it was interesting. I um, had been doing Qigong for a long time, but in that very difficult miscarriage the year before I didn't lean on my, my practices. I, I was, um, I think what a lot of people do, you know, when you get myopic and, um, the things you need the most, you, you, you don't do for yourself. Um, I kind of pushed myself and did my strong asana again, kind of angry at my body, wanting it back. Um, but this, the last time I was much more gentle and I, I slowed down. I took time off of teaching. I, after maybe a week, I tried a little bit of asana and it started cramping again. So I stopped and I, I went into my Qigong practice, which was very gentle, very intention based, breathing into my organs, moving chi with my mind through different pathways of my body. Uh, and it not only helped my physical body heal. And I, I know if you're someone who has had a miscarriage, there's the physical and of course, and there's the emotional layered and uh, kind of heckling all the way through, like alongside the, the physical pain, it's um, kind of jabbing at, at the heart and the mind, like the emotional turbulence. But what I noticed was that with that gentler approach, I, uh, I didn't have the mental 
and emotional swings. And my body recovered really quickly. Um, my, my heart and my mind were heartbroken and shattered. And if they weren't, it would be strange. But they, I felt that they kind of came back into kind of a softer, more open place again sooner. So you felt like the, the return to balance was, was almost quicker because you allowed yourself the space and time to heal and, and to allow what was coming up emotionally. Yeah. Um, and then to support yourself through the Qigong practices. Yeah. And I also, I, op- I opened to not knowing. I didn't get on to internet groups again, trying to look for answers. I just sat with the discomfort of uncertainty and not knowing and impermanence. You know, the thing that actually really helped um, both you know, both times, uh, later times, was thinking that uh, someone once told me whenever there's a child isn't born and is miscarried, it's frees from samsara. And it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's looking back, you know, down from wherever and saying, don't worry, mom and dad, I'm not going to have a life of mortgages and heartbreak and, and I'm, I'm free. Uh, I'm not going to be suffering. My spirit is liberated. And I, I, I was going to ask about, you know, what ways of understanding supported you to accept in that, in that situation? Because I think culturally, uh, at least in the West, there isn't any, if, if any conversation around what miscarriage means, it is often, you know, supposed to be the burden of the mother alone. And because we have this whole, you know, don't talk about your pregnancy before three months. If, if a woman has shared, there's the shame. And if she hasn't shared, then there's no space to even acknowledge the grieving that needs to happen to come back into that place of balance. Like it, it is a major transition and yet we don't, society doesn't seem to recognize it as such. And so how did you process that to allow yourself the peace and, and space and time to go through that? I think recognizing, as, as you said, uh, that we need a grieving process, that I needed a grieving process, uh, and that grief is so individual, and it's a, such a normal emotion, and yet there's no, I mean, people try to kind of explain it or say there's stages of it, but actually each, each person goes through it so differently. And to simply watch and allow myself that space to grieve and to cry and to feel the shame, but to recognize that actually I don't have any answers and trying to have answers to anything I feel these days is a dead end. It, I can say one plus one is two, but I, I don't know what happens after death. I don't know what happens to myself moment to moment. I can't anticipate or control, you know, going back to that, that idea, I can't control my life. Um, there is no kind of guarantee on my life to unfold in a certain way. So um, what I can do, though, is to recognize and feel into you know, what, it, what it is to feel sadness and what it is to feel loss and, and, and see that, that that is a beautiful thing and that what it opens up for me is also an appreciation of the many things that, that I have in my life, uh, the love, the the friendships, the care, the, mm. the self-care that's accessible. Um, you know, there's in Chinese medicine and Qigong, there's this sense that grief opens us to uh, deeper appreciation. And, you know, when we, when we lose things that we don't often think of kind of letting things go as something so positive because it's such an accumulative materialistic society and culture, right? We like, take, 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 but actually letting go is um, a real beautiful way of allowing new growth and a new, a new possibility. And you know, to be honest, I mean, that, that last time I was pregnant was quite a long time ago. And now, you know, it's been about five years, six years. And my husband and I have this attitude now, of, if we don't have children, we will regret it. And if we have children, we will regret it. <laughs> so, 
you know, it's just accepting what is. <laughs> yeah. And I think you touched on something so powerful there and in, in the kind of purpose of grief. I read a book by Sabonfu Somi, who wrote about African spiritual traditions around motherhood and birth and pregnancy and miscarriage. And one of the things that she says is that the spirit of a child who chooses not to come to full term is, has already done their work. Like their work is almost in part to bring a couple together or to reveal something in, in the life of the mother or as a message to the community. Like there is purpose in, in that, in that short life. And so I, I have personally experienced miscarriage as well. And I think for me, there was a, a, a long search of what does this mean and why why me and why is this happened now? And, you know, there was a, a lot of trying to find answers, like you said. Um, and now my kind of perception on it, and even in the women that I support who are on that fertility journey, who are experiencing loss, is to just honor what comes up for you as it comes up for you. And, and to do that in a way that feels safe and that feels sacred and that feels supported. And if you can do that within your relationship, within your family, like I feel speaking about it, trying to process it, like all of these are really healthy ways to navigate what is a really difficult situation. Um, and the more, I think the more aware and comfortable we feel in having these conversations as women, you know, mm -hmm makes us makes us really appreciate our own lives and our own health and and even just being able to come back to that gratitude I think is a, a massive takeaway from that situation and it sounds like that's the space that you're you're living in now mm. yeah I have enormous gratitude for my husband who you know has he's thankfully a very kind of um modern contemporary dude he really likes <laughs> yeah yeah he really likes talking about things even more than I do <laughs> yeah um, but he also explored this deeply for himself and it was a really good way for us to address the the, the grief together but he's he's a photographer um he, he and I both used to be photographers but he still does a little bit more than I do and he made a photo series called please make yourself uncomfortable. And what he did was he went around the UK and he photographed the rooms that men masturbate in. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he's gone on to speak at a number of fertility conferences that are trying to address, you know, the role of men in fertility because it's usually so focused on the woman. But, but he found that each of these masturbation rooms was so different. I mean, there'd be like ones with hardcore porn, like chains and, and leather. And then there'd be other ones where it was like a dentist's chair um, and the, the Eiffel Tower as a photo. And then the other one would... <laughs> and then there'd be another one that looked like his nine-year-old, like, little boy's room with, like, lace and kind of baseball, baseball caps. You know, just very rant, so different. And, but just the difficulty that men also go through and the grief that they go through was actually really, it was um, a really eye-opening thing for me to think about because I, I was so focused on myself. Yeah, women obviously go through the physical, you know, and that the, the early bonding that takes place with the vision and the projection of, of the space of the future child. Yeah. And I think men kind of my experience has been that men come to that a little bit later. And so when miscarriage happens, I guess the sense of pain is, is often projected that it's only, only on the woman. And obviously the, the partner feels that for his wife or, or partner, but I guess it's a different, it's a different sense because of course it's both of your collective futures. And so it's that sense of how you both go through that journey as individuals and also supporting each other in the ways that you both need as well. And so just wondering now what, what your focus is in terms of your work and, and your journey, what's, what's next for you? Journey of a thousand miles begins from beneath your feet. <laughs> that is the, the, another quote from the Tao Te Ching. It's to be here. It's to be here and again, here and here and here and really 
open up to this present moment, the more I can do that, the more I can be available right now is I think the, the greatest fulfillment for me. That said, that's also here is involving a few different projects. Um, I've just finished these two books. So I'm on a little pause from the writing. Yes, congratulations on the birth of the book. Thank you. But uh, I do have a couple ideas in the pipelines for, for different books. And very grateful. I have an incredibly enthusiastic agent who wants me to do more. Um, and it's to, to focus a little bit more on living out in the countryside. You know, we live in Oxfordshire. I look, look out there because I see nature, <laughs> I see trees and grass, and we, we have walking paths right outside our door. Um, and to, to really live some of the, the teachings a little bit more for myself. Uh, and then through that, you know, continue to share what I can with people who are interested and people who would like mm. to look at different paradigms for for health uh, I think it's important to me that right now the um, things that we spoke about kind of shifting uh, perspective and approach to the body but also in line with climate emergency with capitalistic kind of materialistic consumer culture and you know how how we can um, see ourselves see myself within that within that, that, that movement, um, you know, what it means to teach, what it means to share, what it means to facilitate. Um, I, I think the more I can tune into kind of what feels authentic for me, um, the more clear that path will be. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, it's been a pleasure just having this conversation with you um, and for people who are listening, who want to follow your work and maybe read your book, where can they find you? Online. I have a YouTube channel that somehow has 30,000 some followers. I never, I never look at it very much, but I've got some things on there. I put up different Qigong practices mostly. Uh, so that's just under my name, Mimi Kuo Deemer. And I'll put a, a proper link to that as well. Thank you. Uh, my website has some updated information. It's mkdeemer.com. And also on uh, social media, I'm, I'm, all, I'm on all the usual suspects of Facebook and, tw and Twitter, a little bit, Instagram. Um, yeah. So something I'm working on is the social media. And um, I do a little bit, but there's a, there's a little bit of resistance there, and I have to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel you on that one. I think even just the kind of foray into this podcast and understanding the leverage of, of social media has been a, a steep curve for me because my natural place is to kind of just do the work and then share, you know, in person. And so, kind of, you know, channeling that into digital platforms, I, I'm realizing more and more the value of that, but it does come with its own resistance. So I completely on that but thank you for sharing um I just wanted to end on a kind of one last piece of advice you would give and I use that word kind of in quotes because it's just whatever comes up for you but for women who may be on the journey whether it's a fertility journey um maybe having had experienced loss or maybe already mothers um what would you say is like one thing that we could do today to kind of step into this art of self-cultivation. Mm. See yourself as never separate from nature. You know, really feel nature as a resource, that the sophistication of your body in what it's able to do, you know, either in creating new life and sustaining life, you know, it is a miracle, nothing short of it. Um, but to feel that that miracle is unfolding all around you all the time. And uh, to never short, shortchange yourself of that experience, um, to see yourself, whatever your thoughts, emotions, life circumstances, uh, difficulties and joys, they're all natural and not to deny any of those um, to yourself and to, to see them as what makes you human. Mm. You know, what makes you, it's natural to think, right? We are, nature is natural. That's what it is by definition. And as part of it, 
to remember that and to celebrate that. Thank you. I could feel that just running through my body and the relief of that knowing and that remembering. And that's what I hope this podcast can do, you know, in its small way for the women that listen to it. So thank you for being a part of this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Next week, I'll be speaking to Malika Maitland, a yoga therapist and doula from Grenada, where we talk about her home birth, the landscape of birth in the Caribbean, and the ways we can break old patterns through conscious relationships and motherhood. Until then, stay blessed. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to soulmamajourney.com for more resources and ways I can support you on your own conscious motherhood journey. For more inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at soulmamacoach. Also get in touch via email through nahanda at soulmamajourney.com. I love to hear from you, what you thought, what you gained. Please take a moment to rate this podcast wherever you've listened to it and please share with others you know who would benefit from this conversation. I appreciate you. Thank you. This podcast was produced by myself and Chris James. Music by my talented friend, Ayana Witter-Johnson. 